Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in your siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more are what we explore together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla and la Dra. Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Ariel Aquines, Language Resource Center Director for Wheaton College, to discuss Afro-Latinidad in Latin America and the U.S. We ask the question, how do we elevate Blackness without essentializing it? How do we elevate the African heritage of Hispanics? And can she speak to robots? So sientas en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Elizabeth, ¿qué tal? It's good to see you again. It's good to be back with you again, brother, and especially to uh, have our guest today uh, join us. Yeah, so I uh, I debated it, uh, Ariel, and and talk me through it. We we have two options here. We can say your name in Spanish, Ariel. We can also say it Ariel in English. Uh, talk mm-hmm. us through uh, which one we should choose. Which one should we pick? Can we do both? Hi, uh, thanks so much for having me. So I, this is such a funny thing because as I'm deeply connected with the Latino community um, and Spanish speakers, it's always a question of, is it Ariel Aquinas or Ariel Aikens? And I say either or. So usually uh, with friends and colleagues, it's Ariel Aquinas. So let's go with Ariel for this podcast, just in spirit of Yes, she made us colleagues and friends. The Mestizo podcast. I'm glad to be counted a friend. I'm glad to be counted a friend. Hey, if you're a a new listener to the show, welcome to a mixed space, a space where people live in the hyphen, ni de aquí, ni de allá. In case you missed it, there are some conversations in this season with Sandra Maria Van Opsel that you can check out where we talk about decentering whiteness in multicultural churches. We also had a conversation with Pastor Charlie Dates and Eric Rivera about the ways in which they're protecting their traditions, even as they pursue a multicultural, diverse church. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we're taking questions. If you have questions about the conversation we have today or any of the previous episodes, don't forget that you can leave us a message that we'll play in the last episode of the season. You can call us at 312-725-2995-312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y tu pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. You can also submit it via the link on the show notes as well if you'd rather type out your question. Don't forget also to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at World Outspoken, and you can look up Redet to understand more about the network of churches and institutes that are helping to support theological education in Hispanic communities. Okay, Ariel. I read somewhere that you worked for a company that, quote, this is what you were up to. You collaborated on projects that use technology and language to provide knowledge about machine learning. And you also tried to further understand artificial intelligence. So you got to help me understand. Can you talk to robots? What does it mean to further understand artificial intelligence? That's a really good question. So 
Uh, part of what linguists can do is natural language processing. And with the new world of com everything being computerized, um, artificial intelligence is teaching machines how to be human-like, right? How to have emotions, a conscious, and it's impacting every single area of our lives. Right now, Sometimes if you walk up to a building, there's a robot taking your temperature to make sure that you're safe for the building for COVID. So it's AI is using, you know, robots and computer understanding for, for practical reasons. But also we see computers taking over our bank tellers, doing surgery for us. If you've been to Walgreens, you can check out by yourself, right? So replacing the human, which for me can be kind of dangerous. So further understanding AI and natural language processing is understanding what it can do, where the field is going, how far it's going, and put placing emphasis on the importance of diverse linguists, diverse scientists having their hand in, in this work that's going on. Um, so I can't talk to computers, but I can teach them how to speak or I can teach them how to understand things, uh, process, analyze, anticipate uh, things. So yeah. I can't tell if I should be scared or excited <laughs> by what you just said to me. <laughs> well, my role kind of had more to do with testing, right? Testing how a computer may re respond. So I'm not the scientist who can make a robot walk towards you, but I, <laughs> I can see if he can speak and respond to you. That's even scarier because that's what makes the <laughs> robot even closer to us as human beings. Yeah. Seriously, um, he can talk to us. So that means things like Siri, right? When, when people change Siri's mm -hmm. accent to a British accent, those kinds of things, you're testing those kinds of abilities, right? Yep. Also, um, let's say on if you do a chat, there's there may not be a person if you're trying to return something online or if you're chatting with Apple, there may not be a person. But if you write the right input, the correct words, the computer can respond to you like they're a person. And I'll say that this work with artificial intelligence really placed emphasis on the importance of human connection it can never be replaced by a computer. Of course, I'm so happy for Zoom. Where would we be without Zoom? But meeting in person, being in community, it's like God didn't ordain us to do life alone. We need each other. So I'm thinking, hey, gatherings are more important today than ever. Wild stuff. Well, hey, so help me understand. You're a linguist by profession and expertise, right? And Given mm -hmm. the work that you've done, you've worked in the academy, you've worked in businesses doing artificial intelligence with robots, you've worked with cultural institutions like the Smithsonian. You know, how would you describe the career of a linguist? I think the career of a linguist is perhaps the most diverse career option because or career path that one can take because language is at the crossword crossroads of every element of human life. It's at the crosswords of technology and it's our culture. It's our way of expressing ourselves. It's identity. It shows us where we're going. It teaches us about the past and, you know, where we were. 
it can, I think, wound us and it can also make us feel like we've overcome. So I think with linguistics, there's so many different things you can do. Um, you can work in any field and in any country. You can work with any group age of people. Uh, I think that every way that I've used my linguistic background has been intentional and helped me understand the world in a better way and the importance of people who look like me to do this work and talk about it as well. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, language helps us build worlds, right? That's what you're saying. It helps us to build worlds and we can explore those worlds if we better understand languages. Go ahead, Elizabeth. I interrupted you. No. So language, I've I've always said language is culture. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And when people are colonized um, and forced into other languages and so on and so forth, um, there's some real shifts that are taking place. Mm-hmm. So linguistically speaking, that's not just a mechanical thing that's happening. Right. From from your perspective as a linguist, tell us about that connection between language and culture and what happens when violence is introduced to that connection. Yes, so when languages erase, you erase a people, you erase their history, their footprint, their footprint of how far they can go and in different, every sector of society, um, though the United States, for example, doesn't have an official language, you can hear, this is the US, let's speak English here. We don't have an official language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and it's I think that the most important connection between language and identity is that it it directly impacts representation and directly impacts every generation that's to come. And I'm so happy that I speak Spanish, but other languages as well. We everyone should be multilingual to connect with many communities of people. So this is super interesting. This conversation of lingua franca, right, and the this idea that there should be a dominant tongue in specific places. I find mm-hmm. it especially interesting, Dr. Ariel, because for you, the Spanish language is, is well, let me put it this way. You, you did a presentation called La Motivación y la Perspectiva de los Estudiantes de Herencia, Heritage Learners, which are those Latinos born in the U.S. learning Spanish. And for a while, mm-hmm. I thought that that was you, but it's not, right? Tell us your history with the Spanish language, because this conversation of lingua franca and being multilingual it ties back to your story and mm-hmm. why you chose to explore language to begin with. Yeah, and kind of also why I'm so interested in Afro-Latinos, because what do you think about who speaks what? What do you think about who's from where <clears throat> based on these societal norms and lies that we've been taught. Um, So my history with Spanish is that my mom, I grew up in a single parent household. During the summers, my mom would send my brother and I to either language camp or sports camp. I always picked Spanish. I always went to Spanish camp. So it started there. Third grade, I kind of had my first language class. And from there, I never stopped with the language. I then decided in high school to continue studying college. I majored in Spanish. I then got my master's in Spanish language and culture, and then my PhD also in Hispanic linguistics. So while I don't, I I am African-American, but I always say that I'm tied to the Spanish community. Uh, Though I'm not a heritage speaker, I'm very tied to the community through my work and my social circles, my faith circles as well. And I think that the reason 
people like me need to continue not to, of course, uh, replace native speakers, but show others that you need these skills. You need to connect with communities. You need to reach back and help those who may only be monolingual speakers. You can be kind of the bridge between communities and for representation. Now, how do you go from there to your interest in Afro-Latinidad? Mm-hmm. My... So my interest in Afro-Latinos was inspired by the fact that I went through high school, went, went through my master's program, my, my um, doctoral program. I studied abroad in Malaga, Spain, and not once did I see an Afro-Latino. Not once did I hear or learn about an Afro-Latino. They were there. Texas, I, I did my master's programs in Texas. I did my undergrad in New Orleans, which is highly, is a, has a big population of Afro-Latinos. I didn't see them. And my, his, my dissertation, my research on Afro-Latinos was inspired by, why don't I see this important community that are, that they, I suggest they are the foundation of Latinidad. They were there. They were kind of, so it's, they're here in the United States. Where are they? What do they think about society? How are they playing both of these roles? So, and from there, I continue to become more and more inspired and say, everyone needs to know about this, this population. They, they can erase this thought of who knows what, who looks like what. Because you ask yourself, what does a Colombian look like? There's no answer. That's super interesting. What does a Colombian look like? Uh- Afro-Latinidad. I, I read your dissertation. I know I'm nerdy that way. I read a, a PhD dissertation, but I found that you it took you several different lenses to locate and then identify Afro-Latinidad, right? To say, this is Afro-Latinidad. And even then, using multiple lenses, you kind of situated it and said, in Colombia, where I was doing interviews, or here in the U.S., these are some aspects of this to consider Maybe help us understand, right? Uh, let's start first with the linguistic part because that's your expertise, right? As it relates mm-hmm. to language, when we say Afro-Latino, what, what are we talking about? Afro-Latino um, linguistically can be either, there are multiple definitions. So linguistically, it can be either a Latino person, Black Latino person living in Latin America, monolingual in Spanish, or in the United States, which is a growing population, a multilingual, uh, multifaceted uh, speaker of English, Spanish, Creole, French, Portuguese, as as reflected in my study. Fascinating, because I struggled with it. Because as I read, right there, there, there are those like Elizabeth's children, right, who are who are Puerto Rican. They're also. African-American, would, would that be Afro-Latino, right, in, in that sense? Uh, we, we use hyphenated identities like that here in the U.S. And so as I was looking at your study, I kind of struggled with that, right? But but you bring up, there's this quote in your, in your research where you talk about how here in the U.S., you can have a Black person or you can have a Latino. You can't have both, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the identities the, don't, get, don't get considered that way. Uh, why do you mm-hmm. think that is? I think it's systemic, systemic racism, intentional erasure of a people, anti-Blackness. And we see this even in the census. Part of some of the research I did in the U.S. census was what what box do Afro-Latinos check 
am I Latino and I say I'm not black? Am I black and say I'm not Latino? What what does black mean? Am I from Africa? Am I an immigrant from Africa? So it's um, asking these questions and placing or placing the Afro Latino the Afro Latino or Latina in in that space to say I don't fit either or. So for me that that is it. They're they're between both. Now Latin America if we look even at Mexico, started with a lot of different definitions mm-hmm. of race mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, who and Racial what you categories. were connected to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even to today now, we have the same problem where people don't have a box to check mm-hmm. in a census. Mm-hmm. And that's problematic because of what it means for resources to a particular mm-hmm. community. Say, say more about what you have found in your history, in, your, uh, in the history of these different uh, traditions and how this erasure takes place and systemic racism and the anti-Blackness. Because the anti-Blackness is in us as well, right? It's in us uh, in terms of uh, denying our Afro-Latinidad. And we can also say it uh, in different ways. We can say, well, you know, Emmanuel, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're a negrito from Puerto Rico, but, you know, you're not like, and I'll compare you to the African-American, and I'll say, but you're not like that. So there's always like looking for someone who is less than in terms of their blackness. Mm-hmm. So where did all this come from? The, uh, what have you found in your own research in terms of where this comes from and how it, it's worked out in different countries? I So historically, I think, for example, in Latin America, there, there are historical implications. The, of course, the, the, the diaspora of enslaved peoples that, that set the foundation for categorization of less than. And in Latin America, this was furthered, of course, in the 50s and 60s with with Trujillo, the force in in Dominican Republic, for example, you know, as white as as close being as close to Spanish as you could, meaning not black. So in the, the fight with the Haitian population, the representation of what being dirty and less than meant. Um, so there are historical implications in the U.S., of course, with the with the enslaved populations and constantly to this day fighting for representation and equality. I think also getting as close as you could towards whiteness, better hair, better skin came with access and we can't deny it. Better hair came with more access to jobs. Today in in Colombia, some interviews that I did, you know, darker skin and kinky hair can mean that you can't get a job or go to school. It came with access to live in certain neighborhoods. So I think that these the anti-blackness has anti-blackness has um, is directly connected to keeping a certain group on top and having others of always moving towards trying to be better. It creates tension um, among us. And I think that back to our question about the census and having a box to check, as you stated, Elizabeth, if we don't create these boxes, and I think I'm, I'm of the thought that we should have something that can describe as people continue to identify themselves in different ways, we should have something on a national scale 
to say these are the these are here are these communities and this is how we locate them because it's directly connected to representation and access. If we say all Latinos are this way, well, what happens to the Black Latino? What happens to the um, from the to the immigrant students from? Uh, Mexico that, that can't speak English if, if our census says that, oh, all, all Latinos are, are bilingual. So um, these are questions that I'm still um, looking at today. And the emphasis is always on the need for more representation. There, now, there's a lot you said there. Real quick, before Elizabeth asks her next question, I just want to point out that when you talk about the diaspora, this is a fact that I think it blows my mind every time I think about it. There were somewhere between 10 to 12 and a half million Africans who were forcibly brought over during the transatlantic slave trade. And only five of them, 5% of them came to the U.S. Mm -hmm. That means millions and millions of Africans went to Latin America, not to the U.S. And so we're not talking about a small community that's being erased. We're talking about a significant number of people that have been, mm -hmm. that have been erased from the history books, that have been ignored. You brought up Trujillo, and then I'll, I'll let Elizabeth go. Trujillo is a scary character to me. Mm -hmm. He he's he's a he's one of those villains in history, along with you know Hitler and some of these other guys, right? A, a mulatto with Haitian in his blood, who intentionally made sure that all the history books paint him as a little lighter skinned, who <laughs> who made sure that there were programs of blanqueamiento, right? Who who brought in Europeans into his country to try to make things white. And these programs were replicated in Brazil, in Cuba. So, so you have a lot of this going on in mm -hmm. Latin America, intentional programs to whiten the countries and then intentional erasure of certain uh, figures who were black, either by their own design, right? In, in Trujillo's mm -hmm. case, or in other cases, guys who were erased from history uh, without them wanting to. I think of in Cuba, uh, General Antonio Maceo, right? This guy was a mm -hmm. black man. But mm -hmm. if you look at any Cuban history book, he looks like a white guy or a mulatto guy, kind of brown. And so this is happening all over Latin America. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Sorry, I interrupted you. I just I wanted to lay out those details because a lot of our audience maybe doesn't have the sheer the sheer size of the problem in mind. Well, first, I want to give um, Ariel an opportunity to respond to you. Go ahead, Ariel. So one of the, the thoughts that as you were speaking, Emmanuel, was how are these historical figures, these historical systemic racist acts, these policies, how do they affect us today? And I immediately thought about how Dominican Republic and in Colombia, there are 10 different ways to describe yourself as black. And so this further moving, this further categorization, it's not just then, but it's today as well. I I think that as we as we move forward and more people are talking, more linguists, sociologists are looking at these issues. I'm hoping that we can say not anymore. You know, we can call we can categorize ourselves. But if these categories are directly impacting and keeping this community suppressed, then, then we need to move forward. Um, so I'm always thinking about what, like, what can we do today as we continue to study these, these communities? That's good. Yeah, that's good. I think it's important to consider how, how these things have affect us in the present. You talk about these mm -hmm. categories that are still present. Most Dominicans, even the dark ones, if you ask them what they are, they say, soy indio. Mm -hmm. They don't say negro, afro-latino, right? Mm -hmm. They say, soy indio. Uh, um, I have mm -hmm. a close friend 
Dominican brother who who talks a lot about how in his family they'll say that. And some of them could be dark as all get out, mm-hmm. visibly, visibly African in heritage mm-hmm. and still Indios. I I experienced that firsthand walking up to someone that looked just like me. It happened a few times. And they were offended that I asked them, can you talk about Afro-Latinidad? Would you be willing to talk about this with me? And they they told me I'm not black, so I, I can't help you. Um, one of the conclusions of my study, though, found that one of the conclusions of my study found that in Colombia and in the United States, there's a movement towards orgullo, right, towards pride, towards um, pride in being black towards power in the self-identification of blackness. So not having someone else identify you as black because you may look a certain way, but you yourself vocalizing that a declaration. Okay, you'll see soy negra is 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 on the rise, and I, and it was one of the conclusions that really really made me happy that I, I'm doing this work to show there is a shift happening. Um, Afro Latinos are wearing their kinky hair. They are moving away from whitening their skin and products that may they whiten their skin. This ideal of la raza cosmica. We're all one. We're all the same. We all need to move towards this lighter skin. So. Let's take a quick break and then we'll talk more about those celebrations, those those shifts towards celebrating. We're back. Mixtake season two, a world outspoken podcast is coming this fall, 2021. Season one, we focused on how the mixing of cultures in our country impacts the movies that we know and love. We checked out the works of talented film directors that created movies like Creed, Selma, The Revenant, and Pan's Labyrinth. In season two, we'll continue this journey as we delve into the music industry. So we understand the impact that music can have on our minds, but do we know how it impacts our living or how our living impacts our music? Tune in to Mixtake Season 2, premiering this fall on a podcast channel near you. So, Ariel, let's let's go back a second. You said a, a lot here. I want to go back to um, Orgullo. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to Orgullo. If I understand correctly, Orgullo is taking all those things that have been used against Afro-Latinos which describe the blackness, even ugly words to describe our blackness and to make us feel like if you are identified with this, then you should feel ugly. You should feel like there's something wrong with you, etc. And Orgullo actually takes that and redeems it and uses it as a point of resistance, of pushing back. So bring us back to that and bring us back to the word kinky as a part of that as well. Sure. And part of the importance of today and technology is that Afro-Latinos and are able to tell their own story. They're getting on their own Instagram accounts, TikTok accounts. They're writing their own blogs to tell stories, to show these things that have been phenotypically black, less than, black skin, kinky hair, larger lips, right? These And they're using them as resistance. They're using them to show this is beautiful. Being Latino is 
I can be, have large lips and black skin and kinky hair and be organically a Latina, not having any of that separate or making me other, but it is who I am as a Latina. Um, the kinky hair is has been seen as hard to manage, but having pride in kinky hair means it is who you are, accepting that, accepting its versatility, uh, wearing and so trends. There are trends in Colombia, in the United States as well, of that's never been seen before, of Afro-Latinas and Afro-Latinos wearing their natural hair. I mean, shocking people. Um, some of the younger conversations that I that I had, um, the girls expressed that now I don't get as many comments about my kinky hair because her mom started to wear her kinky hair. And another student said, I don't feel as bad. So I would always straighten my hair and perm it. But now I feel comfortable because I have a black teacher who wears her kinky hair. And this is huge in Colombia. So um, resistance as power and using the things that we have suppressed and called ugly to show that these are beautiful and organically, organically Latino. So those are the things that are on the outside. But then mm -hmm. we also need to go back to the history because that's part of the erasure, right? Mm -hmm. Our history, where we came from, who we are, our expressions, our traditions, our customs, even words, right? Mm -hmm. In Puerto Rico, there is poesia negroide. And there are words that come from uh, the African lands. There are words that are mixtures between those languages and the Spanish, et cetera. Um, things that people continue to hold on to, mm -hmm. which are important. Um, even music in churches. Um, if you go to Loisa Aldea, which is known for uh, maintaining its black heritage and you go to church there, you're using the same kind of music uh, that is an expression of the Afro-Latinidad. So, how are persons going back to retrieve these pieces? And what has a retrieval meant? What ha how has it been a part of the resistance and the orgullo? I think um, academically, there's lots of conversation about the decolonization of, of historical studies or cultural studies. So right now there's a large movement of black and brown people and also um, those who support um, uncovering the true history of, of uh, Blackness and how deeply rooted it is in Latinidad. So there's a movement of recovering and going back and looking, connecting the dots between, well, who was this person or where did this music come from? And connecting the dots between the roots, between music and food even, um, and rewriting history. So that's really um, something that's happening today is the rewriting of history. And it's being called the true history. Another way is Afro-Latinos themselves going back and looking and, and seeing how current things today connect with who they are and their history of blackness that, that came from Africa during the diaspora. Um, and I think those are the main, the main two ways that the history is being retold and rewritten. It reminds me of a historical figure in Brazil 
Manuel Raimundo Querino. He's a Brazilian scholar, activist. He took on political power at one point. He, he says at one point, I'm paraphrasing the quote, I'm not getting it exact, but he says something like, Brazil owes its civilization to black Brazilians, right? Mm-hmm. They built the buildings, they built the roads, right? The, anything that we want to call civilization came from the black folks, from the, mm-hmm. from the diaspora that were there. That, that rewriting of history, it sounds like it, it comes from emphasizing and highlighting guys like Guerino, who, who did this work, who highlighted this work and who continue to acknowledge the presence of blackness in Latin America, and in our case here in the U.S. I, I wanted to ask you about that. There's this quote in your dissertation about, um, about blackness being a bridge. I want to read the quote here. It says, Afro-Latinos are uniquely able to bridge gaps between the United States' largest racial groups. They can connect blacks and whites, Latinos, and African-Americans. To understand the Afro-Latino experience, we must be guided by a clear appreciation of the transnational discourse of identity uh, linking Black Latin Americans and Latinos across national national and regional groups. Can I ask you about that? How can Afro-Latinos serve as that bridge between groups? Mm -hmm. I think that this concept is it's not a physical action but it's it's a more of a concept and it doesn't have to do with a task or the weight being put upon the afro-latino to bridge gaps between two two groups between two languages two nations and instead it is the physical manifestation of a disruption of identity, racial, and linguistic concept that concepts that North Americans have been taught to believe, at least in the United States, of who a Black person is and Black people and where they came from, right? My history is not that, you know, I'm a Black person in the United States that was that was a came from slavery from the diaspora, or I'm an immigrant from Africa. No, we have Afro Latinos now, right? I'm from uh, Latin America, and this is these are my roots. So Afro Latinos erase these notions that Black people are a homogenous group. We all look the same, and proof that you don't have to be one or the other. So the bridging the gap has to do more with the uh, conforming um, to one side or the other. And many of the interviews in the U.S. that I had talked about how because Afro-Latinos can bridge these groups, they're friends, they have friends, they have friendships with all different types of people. So black, white, they listen to all types of music, right? Because of their rich and diverse um, identities. And I always argue that they are uniquely positioned into society and can teach us about what it means to be American, what it means to be, you know, this melting pot, this land of freedom, this American dream. That group is the Afro-Latino that really describes where we should be going. You know, it's interesting. It reminds me of a story that my son told me he was in the military. And when, you know, in the military, it's 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 guy power, right? It's it's young man power. And so uh, part of that is uh to to reach out and 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 feel pride about who who your group is, etc. And so he's hanging out with all the black guys and they're saying, yeah, man, black power, black power. And he's there, you know, raising his fist with them and saying black power. <clears throat> and then 
when the Boricuas were saying Boricua power, he's over there and yelling Boricua power too. <laughs> and the two groups started looking at each other and say, didn't we just see that guy over there? Why is he over here? You know, and the, the, the confusion that they had, mm-hmm. he used the moment because he was a chaplain assistant, right? And part of what he has to do as a chaplain assistant is to help build community. And there were some tensions between the groups. And so he used that moment to say to people, yeah, I'm here and I'm here. So, you know, what do you want to say about that? And, and, and to get people in that moment of confusion to talk about what this meant and what was marginalization and what wasn't and what was going to happen mm-hmm. in the military if, if you identified this way or the other. And I mean, it just led to historical pieces and just all kinds of things, right? So those conversations are conversations of awareness, conversations that allow us to to come to new perspectives, Mm -hmm. to see each other differently in ways that I think are closer to how the kingdom would have us to see one another, to to celebrate the the diversity Mm -hmm. that is among us. I want to ask about the tensions that Elizabeth just brought up in that story, because it's it's true. Afro-Latinos can be a bridge in exactly the way that you described, Ariel. It's also true mm-hmm. that there's some conflicts between Latinos and Black folks, specifically here in the States. I know mm-hmm. that a lot of the Afro-Latinos that I know personally are probably more comfortable in the Black community than they are among Latinos. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's true always, but that's at least true with the ones that I'm connected to. You, you quote uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. There's a great quote in your dissertation from her where you say where she says, ignoring the differences within groups contributes to the tension among groups. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you talk also, you go on from that quote to, to cite Chris Rock's joke about light-skinned Blacks. Um, mm-hmm. I think that those quotes about light-skinned Black folks are, are similar in sentiment to what Afro-Latinos probably feel about light-skinned brown folks, Latinos, right? Uh, mm-hmm. in, in what America would call traditional Latinos. How would you mm-hmm. suggest we resolve some of these conflicts? What, what did you find in your research that might point a way forward? Mm-hmm. I Part of my research also found that Afro-Latinos, while they are, while they do feel that they are part of both communities, that they do have very close connections with the black community. I think that, and this is something I've given a lot of thought to, I think that part of, or one way that we can resolve some of these issues is going back, so reaching back, and as we continue to understand our history and where these things came from, question everything. Your mom telling you to fix your kinky hair or curly hair, like, what does that mean? So that you don't tell your daughter when you see her running around outside having fun, Fix your hair, right? So I think part of it has to do with reaching back, looking at roots of music, of culture, and how these things are black. That Latin America is a black country. Yes, it's it's a it's a lat it's a Latino country, right? But it's rooted in blackness. And I think a second part of it is doing the work and not putting that work on black people or Afro-Latinos, but members of the community doing the work and being the being the spokesperson, people like me raising awareness to these issues and talking about them without fear or shame. Um, I think a third thing could be that is, is more representation um, on 
more representation on not just social platforms, but in the pulpit, more representation, um, music in music as well. The music we list, the groups that are very popular and speak to these issues. Um, I think that we're on a good trajectory towards um, rectifying some of the, the issues that may exist in Latino communities and anti-Blackness and only because more people are talking about it. We, there's a consensus now that enough is enough. And there's a hope, I think, that in generations we will will understand where we came from and what is and isn't okay, if that makes, if that makes sense. It does, absolutely. Uh, there is a poem that you refer to a few times throughout your dissertation by Victoria Santa Cruz. I believe she's mm -hmm. a Peruvian, an Afro-Peruvian. I thought we'd listen to a bit of it and then have you comment, and then we'll wrap up with that. Elizabeth can give us some concluding thoughts, and we'll wrap up. So why don't we listen to the poem here briefly, and then we'll close. Me alacié el cabello, me polvé la cara, y entre mis entrañas siempre resonaba la misma palabra. Negra, 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 negra. Hasta que un día que retrocedía, retrocedía y que iba a caer. Negra, 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 negra. ¿Y qué? ¿Y qué? Negra, sí, negra, soy, negra, 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 soy, negra, sí, negra, soy, negra, 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 soy. Yo hoy en adelante no quiero laciar mi cabello. No quiero. Y voy a reírme de aquellos que por evitar, según ellos, que por evitarnos algún sinsabor llaman a los negros gente de color. ¿Y de qué color? Negro. ¿Y qué lindo suena? Negro. ¿Y qué ritmo tiene? Negro, 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 negro. I think that perhaps the most important line in the poem or significant is negra si, negra soy, negra, negra, negra soy. And it is Victoria um, verbally affirming her blackness in Spanish and eradicating these ideas of anti-blackness and those members in her, her community the back, in the background of the poem as she was trying to hide and hide and hide. And she got to a point where she was going to fall down because she recoiled so much into herself. And she begins to say, I can't leave this skin. It's beautiful. It's God given and accepts her identity. So this poem was really important for me. It was one of the first things I listened to as I began to study the community. That poem is a journey. Mm -hmm. It's a journey where we would invite every person. Mm -hmm. And it's a journey where we would invite even those who do not, who are not Afro um, Latinos to understand the power of that poem, to understand what erasure means. But that's a very powerful piece. When someone finally rises up from all of the resistance not to, there have been so many forces against us, keeping us down. And where she finally has to say, this is who I am. Or, you know, you said she almost fell down. To, to fall down is to be down completely, is to not be able to walk, is to not be able to be into the fullness of who you are. And so this is about coming into the fullness of who you are, which I'm going to argue, going back to Ephesians, 
is about being in the fullness of Christ. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. That will preach. Dr. Ayelak Aquines, gracias por estar con nosotros here in the Mestizo Podcast. Your research <laughs> is a gift. Let me tell everyone in our audience, look Dr. Uh, Aikens up. Look up her research. She's out at Wheaton College. Make sure you check out what she's up to at, at the uh, Language Resource Center. Um, there's some dope stuff out there and some real scholarship about Afro-Latinidad. This is a very popular conversation today, and we're grateful for that. And there's also some scholars, scholarly conversations, and so you should make sure to check those things out. Uh, Dr. Aikens, uh, is there anything that I missed asking you, something that you wish you would have had the opportunity to say that you want to say to our audience? I would only mention that um, something that was really interesting is that the experiences of Afro-Latinos, the movements in the United States and in Bogota, Colombia, where I went, is that they're both both groups are moving towards pride, towards uh, fighting against invisibility and deemed deemed as nameless as a faceless group. So um, that that was something really important for me that both both communities are moving towards orgullo, right? Pride. But other than that, uh, mil gracias por tenerme aquí, por invitarme. Um, y adios. Gracias, hermana. Hey, stay with us for the next episode uh, where we'll be, we will be joined by Dr. Willie James Jennings, celebrated author of The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race. We're super excited to have him. He's going to help us imagine a church after whiteness, which is the title of his newest book. You don't want to miss that. That's in two weeks. So thank you again for joining us, uh, Dr. Aquinas. Uh, don't forget, if you have any questions about the conversation we had today, leave us a message at 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, your city, tu pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. Don't forget, you can also type those questions in via the link in the show notes. Follow, follow all of our stuff at, so, at World Outspoken on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And don't forget to leave us a review. Remember, mi gente, that's how people find out what we're up to. And that's how they see that our population is growing and that, we, that we're here, that we're here and we're having rich discussions. Elizabeth, you get the final word. This is about the humanization of all persons. And it's a work of redemption. And I really want to thank Dr. Aquinas for the work that you're doing and get your dissertation published. It Thank you so much. Amen. We need a popular version of that book. That'll preach. Mi gente, se acabó. Bendiciones. Okay.